fundraising is for everyday people. We've been told for so long that it is meant for those who can only write the thickest checks and really working class and poor people have been funding our movements disproportionately. Anybody can be asked and anybody can do the ask. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. We're always looking for ways to bring people into the progressive ecosystem so their efforts can have real impact. My guest today is Haley Bash, a new political entrepreneur and founder of Donor Organizer Hub. Haley's building a launch pad and support network for people who fundraise for progressive causes from their communities and working to create a movement of lifelong donor organizers. She provides training and resources to expand this kind of organizing capacity. It's a good idea. You should listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Haley Bash. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. So Haley, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, absolutely. I'm Haley Bash. I'm the founder of Donor Organizer Hub. I grew up in a very small farming town in northern Michigan, super backcountry. There were activities like donkey basketball and drive your tractor to school day. Yeah, <laughs> the kids know how to have fun up there. Are these full-size donkeys or miniature donkeys? Full-size donkeys, usually a local farmer or farmers that have them will bring them in. And it's funny to watch because people ride the donkeys while they're trying to play basketball. And donkeys are a lot sassier than horses. So it's just a lot of people waiting for the donkeys to move. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of like polo basketball sort of. Yeah, know. yeah. Bumpkin polo is an excellent way to put it. My mother was the definition of small town charm. I was a really shy kid and she taught me very quickly to unlearn that. She would hand me a platter of food and say, go across the street, talk to your neighbors, don't come back for a couple hours. Or she would shove the phone in my face and say, talk to this person, tell them that you miss them. So I definitely came from a very wholesome <laughs> backstory. My dad was the doctor of the town. So it was very, I don't know, Norman Rockwell painting. And he actually had Norman Rockwell paintings <laughs> on his walls in his office. But people really did struggle day to day there. It was mostly poor working class people. The schools that I went through, Betsy DeVos and her family did a really great job of lobbying the state of Michigan. So my public schools had textbooks oftentimes that were older than I was with really inaccurate statistics and facts. And there was also a piece, too, where because it was so isolated and it was mostly white, 
there was a lot of the isms and phobias, racism, sexism, homophobia. So kind of had a mixed bag growing up. I enjoyed it for what it was, but as soon as I could jump ship, I was very ready to. And jumping ship for me involved going just a few hours away to University of Michigan, but it was kind of different worlds entirely. At the time, I thought Panera Bread was the coolest thing in the world. It was a city kid thing that <laughs> the cosmopolitan elite went to. So I was pretty sheltered. And I took advantage of the higher ed world as much as I possibly could. So was kind of the brown nose are always at office hours. I did all of the student orgs that I could, really kind of with the goal of let's not end up back in West Branch, Michigan. At Michigan, you went to the business school? I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why? And what did you learn there? I think I remember the essay that I wrote for admissions was that I wanted to think about social impact at a large scale. And this was coming from a town where I saw that there were systemic issues that were way beyond one person's control. So I wanted to do something that were more scalable than bake sales at Angel Hall. Angel Hall was a big gathering spot in the University of Michigan, and student groups would have cute little fundraisers there. So I was really focused on measuring impact at scale and thinking about how to create impact at scale. And business school seemed like the place to build something big. I guess so. Yeah, it's interesting what an eight-year-old, teen-year-old's mind comes up with. But at the time, that was that was the case. I was really curious about, well, the whole free market system. People <laughs> have made quite a success out of that. How do we flip it on its head and use it for ethical measurements and, and ethical outcomes rather than the extractive kinds? So did you learn things in that program that you feel apply to what you're doing now? The short answer is no, but I think that I became less apologetic or uh, understanding maybe of how corporatism works. And right after undergrad too, I went directly into the corporate world, not very traditional for progressives. So I spent a year in investment banking in New York, and then I ended up teaching myself how to code at the desk and switch into software engineering. And Wall Street and Silicon Valley both taught me that as much as they like to make excuses for themselves, ultimately, the scale that they're creating is destructive and the impact that they're making also, <laughs> especially in Silicon Valley, there was this false notion, I think, when I went there that, oh, there's going to be this serious change, all these smart minds together in San Francisco Bay Area, so progressive, but most of the apps that were being built were to outsource chores that 25-year-old moms were doing for them previously. So I think the theme of my early 20s was learning that that wasn't necessarily the case, but also kind of grabbing skills along the way that could be really useful to apply into the progressive space. What attracted you to that? Was that just like, I got to get a job that pays money, basically? Yeah, more or less. I think if you talk to anybody that comes from a place that they're looking to escape, that's kind of the first and foremost, because even if you don't think about it, when you're Younger, if you are more satisfied with where you grew up, there's always the back option of, oh, I can stay with my folks for a couple months. And for me, that was just never an option. So I wanted to make sure that I was secure enough to be able to live independently as the city kid that I always dreamed of, of being. So you learned to program what language? Python and JavaScript. So at the time, this was 2014, 2015, there were all these coding boot camps that were out there because at the time it wasn't a cool kid thing to do to study computer science in undergrad. So 
they had all of these startups in the Bay Area that had all this money and they needed these junior engineers to basically bug squash. And so the way to fix that supply was having these coding boot camps. And at the time, the market was so hot that I was able to get a scholarship for a coding boot camp and get a job without ever having programmed before in my life. So it was a pretty nice setup. <laughs> Timing is everything. Did you become a good programmer? Decent. Yeah. I think it takes a while to be good, right? When you get to the level of head architect, it just wasn't the path that I saw myself on. But I think the big thing with engineering that I really learned was how to solve problems, even if they feel boring and I don't want to continue on, if there's some sort of esoteric browser-based bug only that's found on mobile, you know, X version of iPhone, uh, just kind of powering through it. And that actually comes up quite a bit in organizing is not every problem that you're solving is super glamorous or exciting and learning to push through it, even though the Google searches are not going to give you answers. I noticed that you worked for Optimizely, which had roots in politics. Tell me about that time. Yeah, Optimizely definitely had its roots in politics. Uh, the founders were part of Obama's 08 campaign and kind of did a quick and dirty way of doing A-B testing, mostly around donation and landing pages. At the time that I joined, though, it, that they were trying to really transfer away from being a political tech company into being a software as a service company, meaning serving major Fortune 500 clients. So while there were some long-term staff that came from the political times, and occasionally some folks did take leaves of absence to join, for example, the Hillary 2016 campaign, it ultimately was just kind of a mid-sized tech company like anywhere else. So you were not inspired there? I would say I lost inspiration there maybe a bit, kind of on the, the land of seeing that when you get apolitical about tools, that it really just encourages people to impulse shop more. You know, if you get the landing page for you and it's winter time and you need to bundle your code, it'll show that for you. And then the culture, I think, of, of tech too, admittedly, I was one of very few not white men that was working in, in software engineering there. And it just felt like always this uphill battle, like leaning in is exhausting. Why even give it a go if it's not your heart and soul sort of passion? So I actually sought an outlet while I was in engineering and ended up going to an orientation meeting for showing up for racial justice Bay Area. And that kind of gave me an outlet where I could kind of have almost a double life where during the day I was this corporate worker and afterward I was able to take on the role of an organizer. And it was an interesting role too, because the first meeting, the head from the fundraising committee stood up and said, fundraising is organizing. And that just changed my life entirely. So it was nice to have a political home on the side, even if the paid labor wasn't giving me the satisfaction that I was looking for. That was also during the rise of Trump and the election that he won. How did that affect you? A lot. I think that I was one of the very few people who kind of knew it was going to come up in 2016, coming from Michigan in a place where it was sort of a hotbed for his organizing. Now, when I go back to my hometown, there are some people's barns that have Trump 2024 painted on it. So I actually took the day off of work on election day just because I felt so physically nauseous. And when the results came in and it wasn't a sort of, oh, I knew it, you all were wrong, but it was just like, oh, I knew this was coming what happens next here. Yeah. Difficult. You went on to something called Open Invest. What was that? 
Open Invest was a SRI, so socially responsible investing focused company that basically allowed for you to create index funds. So like S&P 500, it's oftentimes used for people's retirement accounts or something that you want to be ultimately safe under the world of capitalism. You can kind of assume if you take some of the biggest companies out there that different industries will sort of cancel each other out. If energy is going weaker, maybe technology is going stronger, that'll ultimately make it so that you are eventually able to retire. So with those funds being able to take out really bad actors that you don't agree with their values on, so being able to remove organizations that are deeply involved in the prison industrial complex or have next to no women in their leadership and being able to over-index for those types of organizations that do align with your values. Got it. You continued to be an engineer. Did you enjoy the engineering there? What was it like? I enjoyed, I was one of the first employees. I think I was sixth or seventh employee. I really enjoyed the scrappy nature of creating something new. It was kind of my last straw with engineering. It was like, if I don't like it here, I don't like it anywhere. And I got the sense, especially as we were growing quickly, and the role that I had was away from team brainstorming toward being the traditional individual contributor, meaning that you're just kind of sitting at your desk and coding all day alone. It just didn't really sit with the kind of person that I am. I realized that I really do enjoy being collaborative and the concept of pair programming doesn't really exist so much in the engineering space as much as people like to think it does. So it seems like from there you moved more into politics with your whole self, not just on the side. Tell me about that transition. Yeah, I was offered to run texting programs for down-ballot candidates across the country with Red to Blue Texting. And it was at a time where there were presidential candidates that had tried the texting thing, but below that ticket, nobody had really given it a go. And it was actually a really beautiful, quieter time where it was an effective mobilization and persuasion tool to reach out to voters who otherwise didn't have the chance to reach out to. It was also a cool period because I was only paid staff and we had a lot of campaigns that we were hoping to support and a lot of campaigns that were hoping that we could support them. So I was able to look at each volunteer instead of thinking, oh, you're going to send out X amount of texts a day, being able to turn to them and ask, what do you want to learn here? And thinking about how that relates to building out an overall texting program, whether it's cutting lists or data manipulation kinds of things or script writing, which gets into the more creative side. And it was really cool to be able to support people that were stay-at-home parents that were transitioning back into their careers or college or high school students that were looking to kind of get a pipeline into the political space and really see volunteers as their whole selves, not just the sort of siloed type of volunteer management that happens right now, where oftentimes it's like, okay, you're going to go door knock, or you're going to phone bank, or you're going to text bank. And it doesn't see people as everything that they could be. So a lot of the other cool stuff gets kind of professionalized and pushed off to Democratic staff and volunteers are left kind of like, this is it. This is all I'm going to do here (laughs) is get yelled at by strangers (laughs) by reaching out to them about voting. I had interviewed Isabel, Michelle, and Ava from a Red to Blue organization. Is that the same one that you're- Yeah, yeah, that is the same one. Exactly. We were the texting arm. At the time, we were too in the weeds to come out for air and and join you, but that is exactly it. That's so cool. So you spent two and a half years of your life there. 
How did you grow? What did you learn? Growing and learning. I, I grew around specifically being comfortable, not knowing all the answers and learning from other people. And I really learned the value of building community and political homes. I was such a jumper, career jumper and otherwise that I hadn't had that sense before. And it definitely made me realize how important it is when we're thinking about, oh, people are more disengaged than ever. They're feeling lonely and disconnected that a real source to fuel that fire can be spaces where they come together, have similar values and create change together. Did you feel more fulfilled being in the world of politics now? I did up to actually basically 2020. And the reason being that there was a really quick shift in the peer-to-peer texting space. It went from candidates asking us for rounds where they were reaching apartment dwellers or rural voters that they otherwise couldn't talk to to asking, oh, can we do a cold fundraising text round and ask people for three to five bucks? And at the time, I mean, I get it. I know the game really is they're trying to figure out how to get the most number of donors, lower the average amount of donation per donor. It was the antithesis of what I was seeing at Red to Blue Texting, working with volunteers, where it's like you're not seeing people for their whole selves. You're seeing them basically as three to five dollars that you can put in your quarterly report or add to, to your list yeah, to add to your list. Exactly. And it just, I was realizing that originally where I felt like I was making a difference, I felt like I was, I was contributing to a world of political spam and scam and making people not want to be involved in progressive politics. Ugh, that's disappointing. So you left and did what? I left and I met up with David Slifka, who is a major funder in the progressive space. And he focuses specifically on earlier stage funding for organizations that have scale. So he's previously invested in Indivisible. He was an early supporter of Vote Rev, which is formerly known as Vote Tripling. And we came together because we both had this shared frustration at how transactional and icky the political donor ecosystem really is. Tell me about David. Coincidentally, I'm interviewing him later this week. I heard from a bird named David that you were. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, David? How weird, you know, that because I, I was linked by totally different routes to the two of you. I love this. (laughs) Yeah. The stars are really aligning. David is a very curious person, and he cares a lot. Uh, I think some of the best conversations in the world that I've had are times when we were working together and just really bouncing off all these wild ideas of how to make the political donor ecosystem a friendly rather than scary, spooky, trick-or-treat kind of place to be. And he is somebody that I think is able to manage the tough balance between thinking about things in a data rigorous sense, but also thinking about things in a human-based sense because we are not all numbers. Those are valuable qualities. How did you meet him originally? You know, it's a good question. I sometimes wonder myself. I think originally it was in 2019 when I was exploring some other state legislative-based work around supporting state legislative candidates with digital ads. And he was introduced to me by our mutual friend, Earl Dos Santos, who I was working with on that project at that time. So we had a joint love for state legislatures and thinking about 
how to fund them not only altogether, but how to fund them earlier and to support their overall basic infrastructure. Because if you compare top ticket candidates to down ballot candidates, it's honestly just a joke. Uh, you know, some folks can barely afford van, right? <laughs> and presidential candidates can do all of the wild things. So trying to bridge that gap a little bit. How did the idea that you're working on now arrive? Did it come from him? Did it come from you? Did it come from collaboration? What's the story there? Yeah. So the goal of our work together was really to think about how to make happier donors, earlier donors, more educated donors, because so much of the grassroots space right now is based on you get a digital ad and you're very upset that Mitch McConnell is still in office and you're going to go give to his unlikely to win uh, challenger. And we looked at it from all different angles, you know, thinking about, oh, how do we maybe thank donors at scale? How do we encourage them to give earlier? And we discovered kind of mutually that there's this group of people that already do this work that are the solution, but are completely uninvested in by the left. And we call them donor organizers. I actually am myself one from my time in showing up for Racial Justice Bay Area. David himself was one just because coming out of the 2016 election, he coming from a investor background was really concerned about what was happening and did his own research. But basically what donor organizers do is that they are everyday people that volunteer to do some research on what the issues are in the world that they care about and would matter to the people in their community. So it might be flipping seats from red to blue. It might be long-term investment into infrastructure that's been underinvested in by the space for years. And they really develop a sense of passion for those causes that they find about. And that passion makes them want to share it with people in their communities. So their friends, their families, their extended networks. And they reach out to them in all different kinds of ways. It can be as simple as BCCing a bunch of people in an email. It could be a little more intricate, like hosting Zoom events or house party events. But the underlying thing being that they're giving hope and a call to action to the people that they know, because people all around us are feeling so overwhelmed and so inundated with all this unsolicited emailing, texting, phone calling, asking them for money. And they don't really know where to give it. And an interesting thing, too, is that overall, more people donate than they vote. So if we include all 501c3s, including puppy rescues, but when we get to political giving, it actually really switches. In 2020, 16% of Biden voters gave any political contribution at all. And that was our historical record, right? So there's a real serious need for political funding. People are increasingly alienated by the asks from people that they don't know. And so these sort of thankless volunteers have come in to educate their people on why these causes matter and invite them to join in. So are you saying that more people donate to some charitable, some nonprofit in any arena than actually vote in like the national presidential election? Yes. Yes. So that could be a church. Political donations are not as present as a lot of other types of donations. Exactly. Exactly. There's a huge gap. And that gap comes from feeling disenfranchised, you know, from these texts that bombard us saying that we're basically worth three to five dollars and not seeing as a whole person. (laughs) I mean, people were voting at similar rates before the texting revolution. So but 
there are other reasons that people feel disenfranchised. Yeah, yeah. The different looks each decade or year, but the same pattern being that people don't feel seen and heard in the political arena, so they don't invest in it. So what's the first thing that the two of you did together? The first thing that we did together. Because on your LinkedIn, I see something called VDAs together. Yeah. Is that the first thing? Yeah, it was an initial project of ours that came out of, actually, we were scoping out a potential CRM for donor organizers. So thinking about the data management side of when people are reaching out to their people, like, Nathaniel, we're going to have coffee next week. I want to talk to you about this organization. I know that you care about criminal justice reform and you haven't donated since 2020. Just kind of keeping track of all those things, kind of how professional fundraisers doing it, but thinking about it more on a personal level because not everybody has access to the Salesforce kind of thing. And Salesforce doesn't really do a great job of tracking relationships. You know, traditional CRM started to track transactional sales progress. From there, that's where we dove into the donor organizer space and VDAs together. So VDA stands for volunteer donor advisor, more or less the same thing as a donor organizer was our public facing exploratory project to work with them. So we did a lot of user interviews to get an understanding of where their pain points were. At the time, we were focused a lot on what tech solutions they might need. And we came to discover that actually a lot of their needs were not tech-based. A lot of it was either information-based or people power-based because volunteers, for example, can't get access to analyst institutes. So it's always a struggle to find quality data to make your decisions. And the people power piece is just, there hasn't been a pipeline. You know, there's not a run for something for donor organizers. So that was the real piece coming out of that project that spoke to me. And working with David, he gave his deepest blessing and some seed funding. And I got some support from Andrea Catone and Nick Johnson from Keyframe Illumination to get some multi-year operational and strategic support. And... A little bit, I was hesitant just because I never woke up each morning and thought, oh, I would love to start my own organization when there are so many out there. But kind of being cornered to the side, realizing that there's not anybody else right now that has the bandwidth or interest to focus on this and the deep need that's really there because we have this resource crisis on the left. I said yes and went for it and launched in June and we're rolling with it since. So what does it exactly do? We focus on recruiting, training, and supporting donor organizers. And the way that that looks includes educational content, so hosting monthly onboarding sessions for new people to learn how to become a donor organizer. We also do monthly workshops that are focused on different facets of donor organizing, so making the fundraising ask or doing a social media donor organizing campaign. And there's a broad variety in our workshops just because different donor organizers do their styles differently. We also think about community building between donor organizers in the space. So we host monthly roundtables where we get a dozen people together on a sort of hot topic in the space. And behind the scenes, a lot of my time is spent noticing where there might be gaps or overlaps. So gaps meaning there might be a group where they've got great research going on, but they don't have the list or vice versa. Somebody knows a lot of people, but they don't have time to do the research. I actually paired a few of these 
fathers that one side, there was two brothers-in-law where they love doing research. They have an open source GitHub. They're called Blue Ripple Politics, but their list is only their New Englander pals, and that's very limited. And there's this guy, Alex Clements, based out in the Bay Area, where he has been a political consultant for years and years, knows all the people, but is so busy that he doesn't have time to do the research. So put them together to do a partnership this year in 2022, because for both sides of them, they're like, I don't know if we can do this this year. You know, 2020 really exhausted us. We don't have the momentum and capacity. So I mean, corporate world, you call that like mergers and acquisitions, but also thinking about where are their overlaps already? You know, this person is having this event with the same speaker that is very exciting. How about we put them all together so that there's a really big turnout and there's excitement. And it also saves the time of that speaker of having to kind of shop around for resources. So would you call this sort of like distributed fundraising? Yeah, yeah, you could totally. The real ethos behind donor organizing for people that are getting started with it is we want to always encourage that you can do it exactly how you want. Like if getting on the phone freaks you out, nobody is going to hold a gun over to your head and make you do that. If you are somebody that likes gathering your people together in person, neat, gather them, do that. And also that it's really meant to be flexible with your schedule too. So, you know, it's not like you have to commit to X amount of hours per month or per week to do this. It's really just a matter of thinking about Cycle over cycle, year over year, when you can, doing this work and plugging your people into the things that you care about. What's an ideal client for you? Client is interesting. So we offer most of our services for free. So in terms of client, I'll I'll use it in quotes. Our ideal person, it really varies. A lot of people think of the binary, like introvert, extrovert. Oh, you'd want somebody that's really extroverted and wants to host a big house party. But really what it comes down to it is an ideal donor organizer is somebody that people trust. So maybe they make the brunch reservations for their friends, or they always bring the sunscreen to the beach. <laughs> Those could be indicators. And somebody that they know can do the research and really cares about them. And so research being not just like, what's the best organizations, but thinking about what do I care about and sort of meeting them in the middle there. So it could be somebody that researches vacuum recommendations well, or somebody that speaks up in front of their school board with passion. So is this only for political fundraising or is it any kind of fundraising? We say movement fundraising. The reason being is there's some non-electoral fundraising that is based on larger political power building. But once you start getting into the realm of, say, a kitten rescue, I have two beautiful cats myself. However, I think it's a maybe a little outside of scope, especially because the trainings and the way that we focus on our donor organizing is really focused on welcoming people into movements and encouraging them to move up the engagement ladder. So maybe a one-time donation is your first move, but maybe after that you might sign up to volunteer or you might do a multi-year commitment for an organization. So it's really focused on building political power and I would say not traditional charitable fundraising. So let's say I wanted to become a donor organizer. Is that what it's called? It is. So let's say I want to do that. Does that mean that I really care about this Senate race, this movement group, this state party, a couple things? Yep. And I am trying to 
take the people I know who might be donors and bring them in to help the organizations that I favor. Is that right? That's exactly it. Yeah. So you could throw up an act blue page together that includes all of those different causes. And it's really about how you, Nathaniel, want to reach out to your people. If you're kind of like the way that I normally talk to people is by phone, by all means, dial your people one by one, have a great time. But really just reaching people in whatever way that you feel is natural to you and comfortable to you. And am I trying to make them donors or I'm trying to make them also donor organizers? Donors first, ideally down the line. And we've seen it when Dave and I were doing our research, basically, usually about 5 to 10% of everybody's sort of donor base as donor organizers were potential donor organizers themselves. Ideally, you aren't doing it alone for too long. We recommend that people join an existing organization that's out there, whether it's volunteer-led or there's some progressive organizations that are starting to run donor organizing programs like Movement Voter Project, where you can join on as a volunteer of their organization to be a donor organizer. In absence of either of those things, though, getting a buddy never hurts, right? So one thing that we're really exploring and investing in Donor Organizer Hub is thinking about what is the bare minimum for people to feel that there's a political home? Right now, we're thinking the magic number is three. So having two of your friends kind of join in on the efforts and sort of exploring it together. So kind of having a little micro organization, even if it's a temporary housing home until you can find a place that has a bit more infrastructure for you. Because otherwise doing it solo, it just involves a lot of work and not as much joy. And a big part of organizing when you talk to organizers, right, is the relationships that you build. I noticed that if I go to your website, I could sign up for like a training or onboarding. I forget the term that you used today. And if I did that, what would I learn in that? And what is the support then that you provide to me as this fledgling donor organizer that I would now be? Yeah. So the onboarding session is really meant to get into some of the whys we're doing this, especially because on the left, we've given fundraising a really bad rep. It's kind of considered the least popular kid in the volunteer school when there's a lot of ways that it can be fun and you're doing it with people that you already have relationships and trust with. So there's the why piece. We get into a little bit of the tactics of how just because people are always wondering, like, how do I do this? I've never fundraised before in my life. And we give the optionality if folks want to opt in to do a little milestone. So within the first month of the onboarding session that you attend, asking somebody, anybody (laughs) for whatever dollar amount. The reason being is that once you do it the first time, you realize that it's very different than your worst fears imagine. Oftentimes our worst fears, we think about like, oh, I'm a used car salesman. I'm going to my friend and I'm bugging the heck out of them. And they're going to be so annoyed at me and never speak to me again. When really what happens is that your friend is 99% of the time thankful that you shared this information with them. They want to help you. We're a very communal based species as much as people want to say that we're self-motivated. We are also very (laughs) communal and want to help people out. And once you kind of have that brain wiring of, oh, asking people that care for me to support this cause that I care about isn't a bad thing. It's actually a thing that's helping them. Then that kind of gets people on the on-ramps to do it more and more. From there, we're really here to support you in finding what makes sense for you as a next step. So whether it's joining an existing organization or finding a few pals to join up with and create your own localized 
bandwagon crew to kind of get something started. But everybody's journey looks a little bit different. So our work is really focused on being very hands-on and building relationships with each individual donor organizer because our focus is having lifelong donor organizers. So not maximizing in one cycle how much X individuals can raise. It's really thinking about how do we socialize this for the long haul? And it does involve a deep investment in people because it it is a big ask, right? It's not signing a petition. It's <laughs> going around and learning new skills and talking to your friends, which can often be a vulnerable act, and learning about this whole ecosystem in a way that volunteers aren't often asked to learn at that level. Are there systems, software, data, research that are provided or available to me as someone who signed up? Yeah, the tech, honestly, is I would love for somebody to come out with the magic sauce. We do provide, I would say, duct tape in the absence of having a beautiful service. Duct tape is a very good start. Duct tape is a very good start. Thank you. Um, You know, sort of uh, here are the options for free mail merge, you know, products. Here's how people often track their the people in their networks. Here are the free offerings. Here's where you have to pay a little bit, but you get a little more out of it. A big piece of it, too, is pointing people to Blue Tent. David Callahan runs a really great organization there that does a great job of filling the gaps for people that don't have the access to Analyst Institute. But really just kind of whatever we can tell that your needs are, we're going to give them to you. The tech side is duct tape. And then the relational side is honestly just the thing that a lot of us are missing out on. It's kind of like have your friends over that you haven't seen in a long time. David at Blue Tent provides recommendations about where to put your money. Exactly. Exactly. And that's kind of, it's a game that we don't necessarily want to play because we want to make sure that people are able to trust us to help them in whatever they're passionate about. And at the end of the day, there's so many great causes to support. I'm down with whatever folks feel are impactful to them, but at the same time, wanting to help people get steered into a direction that is based on some level of thought and education, right? So it's not just like, oh, I saw an ad from X senatorial candidate that has no chance, I'll raise for that. Or why national organizations, the only one that I've heard of in this space, so I'll raise for them. Because oftentimes for everyday people, it's better to raise for grassroots organizations or further down the ballot. So wanting to encourage that without saying, here are the six organizations you should raise for. So you're you're pretty new of having started this this year. Uh, tell me about the first few things you did. Did you create an entity of a certain type? Were you able to hire anybody? Is it just you? What's happened so far? So far, it's been just me, although I'm hiring a new person to join me this week. So that feels very exciting. The first things, honestly, that were done were extremely basic. So we're a fiscally sponsored project, thankfully. So that means you're a a nonprofit. We have nonprofit status through our fiscal sponsor. So you're Uh, tax deductible if someone provides money to you. Yes, exactly. But we don't. have the requirements that a a traditional 501c3 does of reporting and of having a board of directors. We're just not at that level yet since it is a very scrappy experimental-based project that we're involved in here. The first things that were done, honestly, were very basic and boring, like learning how to use MailChimp and setting up a Squarespace site, getting the very basic public-facing infrastructure there. I wish it was more romantic than that. But once we had a soft launch, it really was just 
trying different ways to explain donor organizing and fundraising concepts to people and seeing what landed and what didn't. Every single training, I would go in with a different approach. And sometimes I would get sparkles in people's eyes. And other times I would get deer in headlight eyes. And although it's not something necessarily that is tracked on Airtable kind of thing, you can tell pretty quickly (laughs) what is resonating with a human and what isn't. So that was a lot of our focus the first few months is just seeing what really lands with people. And especially because we're all different in how we want to be approached or things that sort of make us nervous about money. Some people, it's histories with money, maybe a little tricky to work through other people. It's more logistical. Like, what do I wear when I meet with my friend for a one-on-one? Just, you know, very anxiety, but practical kind of thoughts. Tell me about the first person that you who gave this sort of pitch to that really got excited and started doing something. Yeah. So she is a playwright. She spends time by coastal in the Sonoma area and in the Boston area. And she was somebody who just turned to me and said, I've tried literally everything in the progressive space, but I don't feel like my skills are being used properly. I don't feel like I'm making a difference. What can I do? And she is in the best way possible, the most tenacious human I've ever met. (laughs) She went through the typical onboarding process, but then I gave her a list of organizations that were out there. And because she's bi-coastal, she wanted to have one for Boston and one for the Bay Area. So she did both there. She did all of these very wild and interesting things that I've never thought about doing in donor organizing. She was like, I'm going to go to this Stacey Abrams event where there's a bunch of wealthy ladies that care about the democratic politics, but are only giving to candidates. And I want them to be encouraged to give to organizations. So she went to this event and talked it up with these elder women that were very used to buying the X thousand dollar per seat at a dinner kind of thing and convinced them to redistribute a good chunk of their money toward infrastructure building organizations. And the lesson that I got from working with her that has really shaped the rest of this work is that there's so much underutilization in our space when we talk about, oh, nobody wants to volunteer. It's so hard to get people to volunteer. We have very few volunteer options (laughs) for people right now. It's like, do you like postcarding? Do you like canvassing? Do you like any cold voter contact? If not, like, sorry, just write a check. And so thinking creatively about how to capture that enthusiasm and putting it towards something that is more relational is super important and really been underinvested in. I mean, there's definitely relational programs that are popping up where it's like, text your friend to remind them to vote, but there hasn't been the sort of level of of deeper organizing with individuals. It's usually left up to the people that are on the ground, you know, doing the the important work. So trying to make people aware that going and asking a friend for 50 bucks, that's organizing. So I would imagine if you're running something like this, you would be tracking how often you're signing up new donor organizers and you would be tracking how much they are raising and for whom you're doing all that. Yeah, for the most part. I mean, it's not 100% all the time, just because the way the act blue works on the back end. Sometimes if you are not the creator of the page, you are unable to tell. And act blue, unfortunately, doesn't have collaborative fundraising pages for everyday fundraisers yet. So 
80% of the time, yes. One thing that we want to make sure of with the tracking, though, is it's not really utilized to create any kind of competitive landscape because people have different access to wealth. And it's not about who's raising the most. Like, we're not trying to create many bundlers out of the system. What we're trying to create is people that are going to do this year in and year out. So the tracking is important and it's helpful for me to get a sense, honestly, more in a binary sense, like who has the confidence to ask their people and who doesn't getting into the numbers of like, this person has raised $2,000 and other person's raised $10,000 isn't quite as meaningful for our work right now, although we're tracking it because people will ask and it's good for them to know. I was just thinking mainly for your enterprises to know how well you're doing. What does the graph look like of the adoption of donor organizing as a principle and using you as a hub for it. What does that look like so far? Are we up to 12 people doing it or well beyond that? What does it look like? So we're between 12 and well beyond. It really for, for us is just, are you asking your people and are you doing it consistently more so than the total dollars? And so far it's it's been successful to a large extent, but also really, I think our constraint is just getting the word out there that this is a a feasible option. That's one. The second thing is not everybody is super eager and comfortable, like the original donor organizer I was mentioning, who just kind of went for it on her own, no problems. People do kind of want a buddy system. So I think for us to be able to scale, we really have to think about getting people in in pairs or in triplets to kind of do this together. Where do you hope you'll be in a few years from now? What is the big vision? The big vision is that donor organizing is considered a volunteer outlet, just like canvassing, just like phone banking, and that people are proud to be donor organizers. I think that's even a shift, though, from internally where we are because people that started this work before a donor organizer hub was founded, when you ask them to describe themselves, they'd be like, I don't know. I'm just a person who asks my people to give to causes they care about, which is kind of a mouthful. So developing a shared sense of identity, I think is really important. Like when you talk with postcarders, oh my God, there is nothing they're prouder of than being a postcarder. So really having an awareness across the board, what is a donor organizer, but then also thinking about for those that are donor organizers, having pride in what they're doing, because that's going to fuel more people to want to join. Do you have any impulse to improve where the money is going? I mean, you sort of seemed like you've had a little bit of a reluctance beyond sending them to um, Blue Tent. I also heard a kind of a theory that infrastructure organizations might be preferable that, to candidates. But like, do you want to systematize that over time? Do you want to be directive in where our donor organizers are putting their efforts? Yeah, I think it's a light touch. So we do a little bit beyond sending folks to Blue Tent, where if they come to talk to us about what they want to contribute toward, just sort of talking through the trade-offs of candidates versus organizations. And there is something for sure where because we want to focus on lifelong donor organizers, it can get tricky to only raise for candidates year after year when you are asking your people. And there's only so much that a campaign can do in one cycle versus organizations can do year over year. But ultimately, we don't want to override people's passions and interests, right? So it's, it's a little delicate balance of if they say we want to raise money for abortion access, having the conversation of if they only know about 
the big national players, encouraging them to maybe look at a local abortion fund or something. But it's suggestive. You could look here and see. And ultimately what their final choice is. And donor organizers are smart. Once they have the information, they'll know what's best for them. We want to make sure that we're not taking away the passion that folks have. And I think that's Something that's been tricky and maybe why donor organizing hasn't taken off in the past is, you know, each individual organization is so focused on raising for themselves, right? Because they got to do it to survive, but that can also turn people off because they're like, well, there's other stuff out there too that I want to raise for. And so we want to play a little bit of a supportive player, but not making the ultimate decision for people and whatever they decide, celebrating that and helping them do the best that they can do at it and really get their friends behind the cause that they care about. A lot of people who've built tools that are aimed at a large audience, relatively speaking, like volunteer donor organizers have ended up pivoting to something that served the organizations directly, like implementing a donor organizer program for movement voter you mentioned them. I know that they they do fundraise widely and, and distribute it out to certain movement type groups. What is your relationship right now with the organizations and what do you want it to be in the long run? Yeah, absolutely. We want to support organizations that are building out donor organizing programs because they are rare. And for people that already have a political home that they feel there, it's a great push to try something new, build skills and make a serious impact because all organizations need funding. Something that we're also focused on at Donor Organizer Hub, again, sort of behind the scenes is hearing from different folks how their process is going, whether they've already started a donor organizing program, or they're looking to implement one just to kind of share best practices or what worked and didn't work just because there is a lot especially around, I would say, resource creation. So toolkits, there's dozens, hundreds, perhaps thousands of house party toolkits out there on the left. And while there's a little bit of organizational customization that's needed, you probably don't need one for every single organization. So something that we're working on right now to launch into next year is creating very, very basic templates that are drawn from already existing materials that then other organizations can use to run with and customize a little more just so that we're not always starting from square one when we're doing these things. A lot of the organizations run on fundraising software of various types, a lot of things in the nonprofit space and the political space. Do you have any interface with those sort of tools or do you look to have that? Yeah, data management is something that we take very seriously a donor organizer have not just because of my background as a technologist, but also because donor organizers are very protective of their people. They're really concerned about the fundraising spam and scam that's out there. So if it's useful to people for us to hop in and help out, we're happy to, but we don't necessarily look to have that point of access. I'm trying to figure out a little bit in my head, are what sort of entity is this? Is this ultimately a tech entity? Is this ultimately a consulting entity? Is this a service? What are you? We're a training and capacity building organization, and we intend to focus on C3 and eventually C4 status that is focused on providing all the sort of logistical and human-based support 
there's a lot of great tech tooling out there in the fundraising space that is created or being created. We aren't really necessarily interested in that. I know how costly engineering is as a former engineer myself. So we're really focused on that. And because we want to be a movement space, right, we don't want it to necessarily be like pay for a fee and you get the full access to the kingdom. But if you can't pay a fee, sorry, you don't get these skills and resources. Uh, We're trying to figure out a model right now, actually, where organizations with more resources can be able to subsidize for organizations and individuals that don't have access. But we do always want to have free entry points for people to be able to do this work because our focus at the end of the day is getting as many donor organizers as possible on the ground not just kind of picking favorites based on who can pay to play. Do you aspire to raise money from other places than you already have? How do you plan to fund this long term? Yeah, it's an open question. Something with the colleague who's joining this week that we'll be discussing, because especially as an organization that focuses on helping others raise funds, where you raise funds from is super important. And there's trade-offs to each kind, right? For foundations versus major donors versus building individual fundraising programs. So it's a little bit of a TBD right now, but it's something that we're actively exploring where it'll come from and and what it'll look like. Do you feel like you overlap with any existing sort of training programs that are out there? I've seen things about giving circles and different models of fundraising that, that are pushed by different types of organizations. What do you see as competition or overlap or synergy? Yeah, Maybe I'm naive. I love to not see anybody as competition. We're all in this together. Giving Circles are a really wonderful program. And I actually worked with the States Project, formerly known as Future Now Fund, on expanding their Giving Circle program in 2019 and 2020. It's part of the donor organizing model. And I would say it's kind of the higher stakes donor organizing ask, right? It's not just can you ask your friends and family for money, but can you build an entity, you know, even if it's a casual one where you're having people come together and you're encouraging them to also raise, it has really great scale potential for the amount of impact that you have, but it also involves a lot of input in there. So for Donor Organizer Hub, we also want to offer the easy entry, you know, a Facebook fundraiser can also be donor organizing. BCC emailing your friends can be that too. So we want a variety pack for people. In terms of training organizations, we've been in really deep talks with some really lovely existing capacity building organizations and the progressive space. And that's where we're focused on ideally teaming up so we're not duplicating efforts. So places where they are interested in talking about donor organizing capacity that we could offer it jointly, or I could come in and give an hour training or multi-session. So really how we want to think about the ecosystem is being as collaborative as possible, as much as possible having negative secrets, because there are really enough resources to go around if we talk to our friends and family, right? But if we play the scarcity mindset, then we're not going to get too far as a collective movement. It feels to me like to get adoption... If you have partners out there that are sizable, that are pushing this model, that will accelerate things a lot. The model that I don't know too intimately, but I'm fairly aware of is Mobilize, a tool for volunteers to find events to do stuff, which is kind of analogous. And they got a lot of adoption, if I understand, by having groups like Swing Left drive people to mobilize. Is there an analog like that for you? And how are you, are you reaching out to that sort of entity? 
Yeah, yeah. There's definitely, I would say, a very non-tech old school analog for that. And that's kind of where we're at right now is talking to as many organizations as possible and seeing what their needs are, whether it's the training capacity building organizations where they want to teach people or it's an individual organization where they're just like, hey, I need more resources. We'd love to explore this together. A little bit the difficulty because tech products are very easy to market and sell because they are these products, even if they're not physical in person, you can click around, you can see how can I have this in my organization? What use cases are there? With donor organizing, we're trying to think of what are the equivalent ways to make it tangible? Because it is kind of a tricky concept. It's a very 301 concept to get on board with, but also kind of not going too far in the productization of it where it takes away the potential for creativity and energy for the donor organizers that are a part of it. Because that's a key piece, right? Like if people aren't feeling like they get to do what they want on their time, they're not going to buy it. Right. But it does seem like if you want to have impact and you want to scale it, at least the piece that's tracking what's going on that you can white label or share around the ecosystem would really serve you. Why is that not a focus? Especially as you do come from building software yourself, like providing something that's software and data that someone can use as their own, you, you know, make a part of their own operation under their own name, say. Yeah. I mean, that was something that David and I explored pretty extensively. The tricky bit is that there are so many different use cases when people fundraise and the existing systems that people sort of mesh together, it works okay, but everybody has different needs. But the main thing you need is like, who are the people you've reached out to and did they donate, right? I mean, at the core, what is your donor organizing network? I mean, that's what I heard when, when, I, when I heard Hub. I was like, okay, we're going to have an information hub for donor organizers and we're going to provide a lot of knowledge around that, maybe data around that, research around that. I'm wondering if what's the allergy to that or is it just too early? It's not too early. I, I would say it exists, right? Like we give folks a spreadsheet where they can track their people. We give them sort of plugins that they can use to reach out to their people. You could say it's too early. You could say software is complicated. The use cases are really varied. I would say it's really the well, cost you want that ratio. Minimum viable product, right? Mm -hmm, exactly. Yeah. Minimum viable product, I would say, is already there, but the difference between the minimum viable product and the extremely usable viable product, that's where the real gap is. Because everybody's using the minimal viable product right now, which is usually Google Sheets. <laughs> I meant your minimum product. I guess you're you're putting them on something that, that you haven't built so much as repurposed. I guess that, that can work. It seems like you're going to end up, if you have a lot of donor organizers, you're going to end up with difficulty in communicating at scale to them? Like not everybody can have your ear. How do you think about talking to lots of people if you have lots of people wanting to do this? It's a great question. Yeah. These are very early stage questions that we're exploring ourselves. I mean, the whole good old fashioned newsletter is obviously the MVP of that concept. I think a key piece for what we're building is that 
as more donor organizers come on, what you're going to need also is more people to support them. So kind of like how a swing left or other organizations will have regional organizers, having that kind of model, I think makes sense because at the end of the day, it can't just be like a hub and spoke unidirectional kind of communication. You do need that feedback loop back on how things are going on the ground and encouraging more local or regional based collaboration, just because people are getting together more in person why not have people get to know each other more and do this work together? So it's not like a candidate comes to Boston, they have to go to 20 different house parties, they can go to two. There is a lot of that thought and the early stage thought is that it's it's got to be more organizers because it is organizing. Yeah. What strikes me as having potential here is the lens of looking at regular people as donor organizers rather than that very thin crust of people who already do that work as bundlers or as professional fundraisers. This is kind of the longer tail of the fundraising world. And thinking about that in a new way and motivating those people does seem like it could end up accelerating fundraising and bringing new people in as donors and giving people a sense of efficacy and helping make the right decisions about where to, to send money. So, I mean, there's a lot of potential there for sure. Yeah. Yeah. You get to back to the Dunbar's number of 150. Everybody knows 150 people and it's not just people's best friends and their mothers that are giving to them, right? It's oftentimes people that they worked with six years ago and had a good relationship with, but haven't really spoken with since. And they're just excited to see what they're doing and want to contribute. So the 150 number kind of comes in oftentimes when I'm thinking about our scale because it really just isn't who's closest to you that donates. It often is surprising for a lot of donor organizers we work with on who gives just because they've had some kind of prior relationship. Have you talked to the, any of the folks doing relational organizing? There are a bunch of tools in that space. They're much more organized, as I understand it, mostly around registration, get out the vote sort of stuff. But it seems like this is very analogous in sort of what you need to track and and who you need to reach out to. Does this just fit with one of theirs? Are any of them doing this already? None yet, although Unified is a very early stage startup that's building a platform for organizers, broadly speaking, and so tracking people's different actions. And actually, that's where I see that donor organizing tracking could be held is in a already trusted technology company, like you're saying, that's already tracking these things. It's like, why would Donor Organizer Hub create another tech platform that has bugs to be squashed and all these kinds of things, and it's super expensive, just hand it over to a trusted tech company. The nice thing about Unified, too, is that they're very focused on user privacy, which is also a really big concern for donor organizers because they're so sensitive about their people's information and definitely have been in contact with relational organizing platforms as well to try to figure out, even if it's not a full data management system, just for those that do texting and emailing as their primary forms of donor organizing, how they could get the word out that way. Super tricky to figure out how to fit into this ecosystem, I think. I can see that you're working away at it. That's that's pretty cool. Yay. It's easy to build something without thinking about others, right? Like I could go into this and be like, I'm going to hire five software engineers and we're going to build our own platform. But building cooperatively takes a bit more time 
with the hope that time really pays off because we can kind of think about it as a movement rather than just Haley Bash is doing this project all on their own. <laughs> what questions should I have asked you that I haven't? You've done great. You're good at this. You know what you're doing here. Well, that's a relief to hear. Is there anything else you want to say? Fundraising is for everyday people. We've been told for so long that it is meant for those who can only write the thickest checks and really working class and poor people have been funding our movements disproportionately compared to the amount that they have for years. So if I was to leave you any last words, it would be that anybody can be asked and anybody can do the ask. And so if somebody wants to become a donor organizer, what should they do? To become a donor organizer. So go to our website, donororganizerhub.org. If you go to our events page, we have an onboarding session that goes on every month. We actually have our next one in just 10 minutes if you <laughs> want to hop on, Nathaniel. But from there, we will get an intake from you to be able to answer your questions and get you started on what next steps might look like for you. Oh, wonderful. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Nathaniel. This has been so fun. That was Haley Bash. She's at DonorOrganizerHub.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at GreatBattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit DemocracyGroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.